2: Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring starship, sofa, and far-fetched fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Relax and settle in. The end is nearly upon us. Of the year, that is. It's a time for renewal and rebirth. A time to let go of old habits and rebuild new, uh, hopefully more productive, ones. It's also, unsurprisingly, a time rife with superstition. As a first-generation Canadian on my dad's side... I grew up fairly close to the old-world traditions and superstitions of my Hungarian grandparents. Having spent most of her life steeped in the rich cultural mythologies of East-Central Europe, my grandmother, in particular, was very serious about her superstition. To her they weren't cute customs or simple, fun stories. They were important rituals that if followed properly, were designed to give you the best shot at a happy life, and if not, could spell certain disaster. Did you accidentally tempt fate by mentioning your good luck? Knock on wood, right? Not that simple, according to my grandmother. You've got to knock from underneath with your left hand if you expect it to work. Spilled salt? Take a pinch in your right hand and throw it over your left shoulder. You've got to be crafty to fool the devil, after all. As a kid, it was always intriguing and entertaining when she would show up at our house on New Year's morning with a fistful of dried lentils to sprinkle on the doorstep. It invited good fortune for the coming year, she said, and acted as a barrier to keep out evil and bad luck. There are plenty of other superstitious New Year's traditions from around the world, many of which are linked to fortune. The first person to your home on January 1st, for example, is thought to bring prosperity, as long as they're not a blonde or a redhead. In Ireland, banging stale bread on the walls on New Year's Day is meant to drive off evil spirits. Even the color of your underwear on New Year's Day has significance in different parts of the world. Gold underwear in Venezuela brings luck and money, while red underwear in many parts of Europe brings love and romance. But not all New Year's traditions are that whimsical. On the Oga Peninsula in northern Honshu, Japan, the new year brings with it something far more sinister. Demons. The great oni, or ogres, known as the Namahage, live high in the mountains above the Oga area. From their vantage, they keep watch on the villages, looking for any kind of laziness or misbehavior. But during new years, they emerge... Groups of twisted, toothy, angry faces and thick, shaggy bodies wielding knives and wooden pails, descend on the villages to torment lazy and misbehaving children. Portrayed by young men dressed in heavy oni masks and traditional straw capes with wooden or papier mache knives, the Namahagi originally had more nefarious intent than just a scare. As the legend goes... About 2,000 years ago, Emperor Wu of Han traveled from China to Japan, bringing with him five demonic oni, the Namahage. These oni made their homes on the two peaks, Honsan and Shinsan, high above the Oga area. They regularly terrorized the region, stealing crops and young women from the villages. After dealing with that for a few hundred years... It's no surprise that the citizens of Oga became frustrated with their condition. They wouldn't put up with it any longer, they decided. They had formed a plan. A plan to use the ogre's own hubris and arrogance against them. So they put forth a challenge. If the Namahage could, in just one night, build a flight of one thousand stone steps from the village... To the Akagami Shrine on the mountaintop, the villagers would willingly sacrifice one young woman each year to be taken by the Namahage. No fighting, no fuss, no hassle. If the Namahage lost, however, they would have to leave and never set foot in Oga again. And the Ogres accepted. Confident in their impossible challenge, the villagers sat back to watch the ogres toil. But the stairway grew stone by stone, and with every new step, the villagers' confidence slowly began to bleed away. It was a race against the light as the horizon began to brighten and the staircase climbed ever closer to its destination. The ogres were nearly there. But... Just as they completed the 999th step, one of the villagers had an idea, a last glimmer of hope. In his best rooster impression, he crowed out to falsely signal the dawning of the day. It must have been a good impression, too. Fearing the rising sun, the Namahagi dropped their tools and fled, their work all but finished except for one final stare. The villagers had won, and now the only Namahage seen in Oga are the costumed young men who scare kids into hard work and good behavior at the start of the new year. Now, children of the night, what say we scare you into good behavior to kick off your new year with a little fiction? Julie C. Day has published over two dozen stories in magazines such as Interzone, Black Static, Split-Lip Magazine, The Cream City Review, and PodCastle. Her first collection, Uncommon Miracles, is forthcoming from P.S. Publishing. Julie's fiction reflects her relish for the esoteric and the scientific, she spent an inordinate amount of time researching such topics as the damselfly fly, Aishnura Hastate, the ancient city of Teotihuacan, quantum refrigerators, and the late 19th century orphan trains. You can find her at This Julie Day or on her blog, stillwingingit.com. Cafe writing and long baths with paper books are also a thing. Children of the Night, Julie C. Days, Raising Babies.
0: Even though it was spring, God's time for new life and rebirth. Beneath three feet of hard-packed dirt, the baby wouldn't stop crying. Unlike back in Asheville, real flowers were hard to come by at Grandma Charco's house, but they were necessary. Two weeks ago, Sylvia had grabbed a handful of zinnias from the neighbor's garden. Last week, she had lifted roses from the top of a shiny gravestone. Yesterday, she had even sacrificed the carnation grandma received at church, pressing it down into the dry, unyielding ground. See, baby? See what a seed can do? But still, the baby kept crying. Mama's garden sat in the corner of the backyard, not far from the chain-link fence and the looming shadow of the neighbor's sagging porch. Sylvia could hear a dog bark, followed by the frantic scrabble of large paws against an unknown door. The garden was a lonely place for newborn things. It's okay, baby. Sylvia crouched down and patted the hard earth. It's all right. When Sylvia was little, Mama used to sing those nursery songs with the hand gestures. Maybe that was why the baby cried all the time. It couldn't move its arms itsy bitsy spider, Sylvia began, her spider fingers laddering upward. Climbed up the water spout. The dog had finally quieted. Sylvia could hear the whoosh of cars speeding along 3rd Street and out of town toward the East Fork White River. One block in the other direction stood Columbus's historic district. Grandma's church, St. Peter's, was on that street by all those houses with the fancy wrought iron fences. Beyond this little stretch of 4th Street, it was almost like Grandma's faded wallpaper house didn't even exist. And the itsy-bitsy spider climbed up the spout again. Sylvia's hands reached high overhead, then dropped quickly as yet another whimper rose up from the ground. Ma, Mama. Sylvia scuffed her Mary Janes against the late spring ground. You stupid, cranky baby. The bad baby seed was ruining everything. And she and Mama had both worked so hard. They had started working as soon as Grandma pulled into the driveway of Grandma's house and hauled their suitcases up the stairs. Grandma may have dragged the two of them, Sylvia and Mama, all the way from Asheville, North Carolina, to her own home in Columbus. She may even have driven Mama to some doctor and made sure to collect all those medicine bottles with the hard-to-open caps. That didn't mean Mama had given up on her dream. Sylvia and Mama arrived in Columbus at the end of summer, just before school was supposed to start. The air conditioners stuttered and droned, and the grass was patchy from weeks of August heat. But at night, the air cooled, and Mama pulled the thin cotton blankets around Sylvia before she kissed her goodnight. Now that summer's over, Mama said before she closed the bedroom door, it's time to prepare for the spring rebirth. Like Grandma's baby Jesus? In her nightlight's glow, Sylvia could see Mama's smile. Yes, exactly like that. Good night, my little gardener. Somehow, Mama never mentioned her plans to Grandma Charco or to anyone at Grandma's church, even though all those old people were always talking about rebirth and resurrection. And for some reason, now that they lived with Grandma, Mama's smile looked all wrong to Sylvia, different, all teeth and stretched skin. Back before Grandma Charco showed up at their old apartment in Asheville, it was just the two of them, Sylvia and Mama. No God, no doctors, no Grandma Charco. Back then, there had been no smiles. Sylvia's days were all about sad Mama and anxious Mama and not even able to walk Sylvia to school Mama. Gazing at yet another Mama's smile. Sylvia was reminded of those germs Grandma Charco kept talking about. No matter what Grandma and the doctors did, no matter how happy those mama smiles made everyone else feel, underneath her smiles, those big mama feelings were still spreading and spreading, getting ready to burst yet another cell. Just like every other morning, Mama sat with Sylvia and Grandma in the dim, wallpapered kitchen. Mama sipped her coffee, and Grandma ate her oatmeal one careful bite at a time. Sylvia could almost count the seconds between each mouthful. Three, two, one, swallow. Meanwhile, Mama smiled and smiled. I thought I'd plant a few flowers, Mom, to get my mind off of things, you know, therapy. From the center of the table, two salt-and-pepper shaker girls in yellow dresses watched Mama and Grandma Charco. Nearby, a crowd of wallpaper ladies stared at them with faded, gone-away eyes. Mama's own eyes were wide and shiny, like all those nights in Asheville when Mama didn't bother to sleep. Swallowing stuff she took out of that small wooden box. Mama took a different kind of pill now. Grandma and her Days of the Week pillbox made sure of that. Flowers? Grandma's voice was calm enough. Still, Sylvia noticed that Grandma had clenched her spoon in one claw-like fist. Mama noticed, too. It'll be glorious, Mom. Transformative. Like the hands of God himself. Mama tossed her head and stretched her lips extra wide then stood up and quickly unlocked the sliding glass door. Sylvia! Little Sylvie, come dance with me! She cried, darting down the back steps and out into the yard. Carefully not hearing Grandma's wait, Sylvia followed. Of course she did. Mama needed Sylvia's help. Mama and Sylvia covered the flower bed with leaf mulch. They snapped off the dead flower heads. The two of them cleared the ground of weeds, revealing the curling grubs and worms underneath. Autumn's not the right time for planting, Mama said. We waited too long. As though Mama had known Grandma was going to drive out to their apartment in Asheville and collect the two of them. As though this move back to Indiana was an actual Mama plan. Sylvia bent and picked up one of the worms. The worm wriggled against her palm, not even trying to escape. Why weren't people more like garden worms? The ground has to be prepared just right for plantings to survive the winter. Mama's eyes were on the undulating worm, or perhaps just the bits of dirt coating Sylvia's hand. The season's not entirely lost, though we have a lot of work to do. Then Mama knelt down and laid her ear to the ground, listening, she said to her warm friends loosening the soil. Whatever that meant. Sylvia glanced toward the house. Grandma stood in the kitchen window, her arms crossed, her expression hidden by the comparatively dim light. Sylvia couldn't even see the ladies with their pretty parasols and wide skirts that covered Grandma's kitchen wall. It was better, Sylvia decided, if she didn't show Mama any more worms. Even without Sylvia's help, Mama remembered. Grandma and Sylvia stood at the kitchen window, watching the water run down Mama's face. Mama's cloud tears making all the world gray. Don't you go crying, Grandma said. But Grandma, Sylvia started. Mama lay stretched out on the soggy ground. And she hadn't moved for an age, not even when Sylvia came inside. Mama needed the worm's help to calculate the optimal planting time. That's what she'd said. Worms cared for all buried things, she had said. Now hush, little Sylvie, I'm listening. Mama had said just before Sylvia ran to find Grandma. Grandma? Sylvia tried again. Grandma looked round and sturdy underneath her loose, flowery dress. But Sylvia didn't feel the slightest urge to lean in for a hug. I'll talk to the doctor about her pills. Got cleanin' to do right now. You coming? Grandma Charco pulled her cardigan more tightly across her shoulders, then walked back into the interior of the house, not even waiting for Sylvia's reply. Sylvia stood next to the fading wallpaper and the worried ladies staring at the two full women sprawled out under the too-gray sky. Some seeds needed more help than others to find their way. Some people, too. Mama didn't garden anymore. The January wind rattled the windows. The wallpaper women seemed to huddle beneath their parasols. These days, it was just Sylvia and Grandma Charco, and yet another Sunday dinner table set for two. It was ice cold outside. Hopefully the ground was warmer underneath. Can't believe they still haven't found your mother, Grandma said, spooning green beans onto both their plates. Bet she planned this right from the start. Grandma Charco's lips were all puckered, as though Grandma wasn't the one who had herded both her and Mama into the car and all the way back to this very house. Hopefully, blood won't tell. Grandma continued with what Sylvia thought was a certain lack of Christian charity. Change is really, really hard work, Mama had whispered all those weeks ago on that cold November night. But Sylvia wasn't going to share Mama's secrets with an angry Grandma. It's okay, Grandma, Sylvia said instead. She tried not to smile or frown, tried not to look all droopy with feelings. What if Grandma started hearing the worms? What if Grandma asked Sylvia to help? Sylvia already had enough to care for in the garden. Though Grandma had known Mama for a really long time, much longer than Sylvia. Grandma Charco, Sylvia decided, was probably immune to Mama's feeling germs. All those winter prayers at St. Peter's Church with Grandma, all those candles Sylvia lit in the hidden garden shrine, didn't help. Neither did the lullabies, the roses, or the carnations. Spring had arrived, and still God and the worms hadn't transformed a darn thing. Stupid, stupid baby! Sylvia scrunched her nose at Mama's flower bed and kicked at the spring-softened earth. The other green, sprouting things were rising up from the ground, and yet no newborn Mama wriggled out, wrinkled as a garden worm. I'm ready, Sylvie, Mama had said as she looked up at the autumn sky. And Sylvia, holding that cold shovel in both hands, had tried really hard to believe her. But Mama's plan wasn't working. Sylvia looked down at her scuffed leather shoes and the bunch of brown tea roses. Grandma would be so mad. She liked to sit with Sylvia and count the wallpaper ladies on the kitchen wall before heading off to services. But Sylvia had promised Mama she would help, and Sylvia always kept her promises. The April air was night cold. The stars hung overhead as Sylvia took two paces to the left of the garden plot, pressed the sharp edge of the shovel into the dirt, and began to dig. It had all gotten muddled somehow. The baby cries and all those tears. But this time, Sylvia had a plan, a real plan. This time Sylvia would get it right. Soon that lonely baby seed would be sprouting up all green and fresh new. Mama's baby seat just needed someone to hold its hand. Sylvia sighed. Grandma's Bible study would be over soon. She needed to finish up. Grandma wouldn't understand about all the dirt. A few months in the earth was a small enough price to pay for a freshy green rebirth. Soon enough, Sylvia and Mama would finish their new baby bodies, and together they would rise up ready to face the sun and the wallpaper-dim world.
2: That was Julie C. Day's Raising Babies as read by Michelle Kane. Michelle lives in the Kansas City metro area. She has a dulcimer and a baudron, which she never has time to play because she's too busy spending time working in a cube farm and being mom to her six-year-old son and 11-year-old Lab. She enjoys narrating stories whenever she gets the chance. Thank you, Michelle. Our second story comes from Robert Jashanik. Robert Jashanik is an award-winning author whose envelope-pushing fiction has made waves around the world. His stories have appeared in Pulp House, Fiction River, Galaxy's Edge, Tales from the Canyons of the Damned, and many other publications. He has also written official Doctor Who and Star Trek fiction and Batman and Justice Society comics for DC Comics. Robert has won an International Book Award, a Scribe Award for Best Original Novel, and the Grand Prize in Pocket Books' Strange New Worlds Contest. Hugo and Nebula Award-winning author Mike Resnick calls him a towering talent. Join Robert's fantastic voyages at robertjashanik.com. You can also find him on Facebook and follow him as at the Fictioneer on Twitter. Please join me for Robert Jashanik's Piggyback. This story isn't for you. The creature I'm riding staggers and clutches his left arm. He cries out, and I nearly cry out along with him. I can feel the pain shooting through him, through us both, because we're connected. I can feel his fear, too. But it's nowhere near my own, because what will happen to him if he fails isn't even close to what will happen to me. He doesn't know that this is my last chance. The creature, an overweight middle-aged human with shaggy dark hair, is called Calvin Garland. He's homeless, and he's drunk, and he's having a heart attack in a New York City alley. But he's mine. Not that he even knows that I'm here, wrapped around his shoulders like a slimy green mink stole. Not that he or any other human is aware of me. Though occasionally, when I want him to, he can hear me just a little. And sometimes he catches a glimpse of me out of the corner of his eye, just for an instant. It's happened to you, too, hasn't it? Haven't you ever thought there might be a good reason for that? Calvin falls against an alley wall, clutching his chest. At the same exact moment, I wrap a green tentacle around him and clamp its fanged red sucker into the flesh over his heart. I pump a stream of syrup into his heart and follow that with electric shocks. The whole time my hundred scarlet eyes are looking for any sign of the viscera in the sky. If the viscera is watching and Kelvin drops dead, I'll be swept from his body and subjected to torments you can't even imagine. "'I'll spend the next thousand years shrieking and howling in agony "'at the hands of creatures who can see, touch, and torture me just fine. "'None of this will happen merely because I lost a host. "'It will happen because I failed to drive a host "'to save the planet from the greatest threat it has ever faced. "'You don't want to die.' I whisper in Calvin's ear from my fluttering, ooze-coated lips. "'I don't want to die,' whispers Calvin as the syrup and the shocks take effect. "'I don't want to die!' His heart returns to normal, for the moment at least. Maybe if he'd taken better care of himself all those years, but he was living rough even before he moved to the streets." I curl another tentacle around his head, plant a sucker between his eyes, and pump in different syrup to take the edge off. He won't do me much good if he's too freaked out to walk and talk and fire a gun. Then, suddenly, the temperature drops twenty degrees, and the sun turns to shadow. My circulatory organs pound, and my slime turns to ice, because I know the viscera is here. All my eyes turn upward, there it is, hanging over the tallest towers, filling the sky, too massive to take in all at once. Yet not a single human can see that vast mass of squirming tentacles and pulsating ebony flesh. No human-built instrument can detect the flickering strobes of its sensory organs, or the excrement dripping from its orifices. And no human mind can comprehend the intentions of its ancient, implacable intellect— Not one of you can fathom the extremes that it will go to when dealing with its yoke-servants, like me. But I can, and that is why I quake as it passes. That is why I do everything I can to stay unnoticed and unpunished. Though I know, as every yoke does, that the viscera misses nothing. It is our God, just as it is yours, even though you don't know it yet. I feel much better now, I whisper in Calvin's ear. I think I'll take a walk. Calvin repeats the words, then pushes away from the wall and heads down the alley toward the street. On the way, he reaches for the bottle of cheap vodka in the pocket of his filthy black overcoat and unscrews the cap. He's drunk enough as it is, and the booze won't help his heart, but he's committed to drinking. It's the one thing I can't control, the driving force of Calvin's life. I feel the vodka burn as it flows down his throat. Then I feel a secondary burst of heat as the alcohol works its way from his bloodstream through my tendrils. His brain lights up as the chemicals take effect, and he feels good. I experience the feeling through him, though I'm not made to enjoy it like he does. Sometimes his abuse of it can be a real problem. Though it's also one of the perks of our partnership. It lowers his inhibitions, increases his suggestibility, therefore making him more likely to succeed in saving the world. It gives him a chance to make up for the damage he's done in his life, though it can never bring back all the people and things that he's lost. Somewhere in the world, Calvin has a son and two daughters, an ex-wife, too, and an ex-life. Was it the booze that cost him his job as an actuary at an insurance company? That cost him his wife and kids and friends and house? That cost him everything? It was fear, actually, fear of losing it all, that made him lose it. A self-fulfilling prophecy. I call it fate. Now, at least he has me. And his mission. His purpose. I've given his life meaning again. If only I can keep him alive long enough to achieve it. Calvin stumbles down the street, guided by twitches of my tendrils embedded in his brain. Human commuters of all description hurry past on the way to work, giving him a wide berth, many aiming, disgusted looks in his direction. He's repulsive to them, dirty and homeless. But I wonder how some of them would feel if they knew about the unseen, pulsating green hitchhikers riding piggyback on their shoulders. There are lots of us out there in the world, each performing a separate mission in the name of the Viscera. You might be surprised how close to home they are. We're a brotherhood, but whenever I see one coming, I avoid it. I steer Calvin out of its way, even if it means bumping him into someone and causing a scene. Because I'm not in the loop about their missions. Any one of them might have been assigned to take over mine and cut me out of the picture. I need to walk faster, I tell Kelvin. I need to walk faster, he repeats, speeding his pace. At the next intersection, while we wait for traffic to clear, a young blonde woman in a floral print dress stops beside us. She is oblivious to the yoke clinging to her shoulders. Its eyes lock on me like a hundred crimson magnets. One of its tentacles twitches in my direction, and I panic. Then, as I'm about to tell Calvin to break into a run, the yolk's tentacle squirms around and hooks into the blonde's left breast. It's only feeding but I still don't take my eyes off of it until we've walked another block and lost them down a side street. A few blocks later, Kelvin realizes he needs to urinate. Worried about the delay, since we're on a tight timetable, I push him onward, but then I realize he'll piss his pants if I don't let him relieve himself. He turns down an alleyway and stumbles over behind a dumpster. It doesn't bother him that there's another homeless man sitting across the alley watching him. The pain from his full bladder is too great. Taking advantage of the situation, I pump my own metabolic waste out with his urine and blood. His kidneys are in rough shape. He's down to one, and it's failing fast. Between that, the cardiac arrest, the cirrhosis in his liver, and the lung cancer, it's almost a miracle that he's walking around alive. I say almost, because it's all because of me. Without my propping up his systems, he'd be long gone by now. I wonder if, on some level, he understands this. I'm sure he notices when a muscle in his eye twitches or a vein in his leg ripples for no apparent reason. He's aware when there's a sudden sharp pain in his side or strange new marks on his skin that won't rub off. All these things come to his attention, though he just brushes them off and gets on with his day. Sound familiar? Have you ever noticed fluctuations like these yourself? Have you ever wondered what they might mean? Are you noticing one right now, at this very moment? As soon as Calvin stops pissing, he grabs the bottle of vodka. I don't bother trying to get between him and his booze. I know it's futile. But he barely gets a swallow out of it. Cursing, he hoists it high, letting the last drops drip on his tongue, and then he shambles over to the guy across the alley. Excuse me, Calvin holds up the bottle. Help a brother out. The other guy is younger, leaner, twitchier, without a yoke. He squats there, smoking a cigarette, watching Calvin with wide, bright eyes. I better get going, I tell Calvin, but he doesn't repeat it, and he doesn't turn to go. Which is too bad, because I can see the chemical traces of recent heroin use all over the other guy. And who knows what kind of weapon he might be packing— The possibility of failure followed by worldwide catastrophe and a thousand years of torture just increased dramatically. Why is my luck always so lousy in the field? Twelve is the magic number. That's how many hosts have died under my care without completing their missions. Can you imagine what it's like being pulled apart and repaired by the viscera? It has happened to me every time I've lost a host, and it is awful. The agony doesn't come close to the alternative, a thousand years of extreme torture for a yoke deemed unfit for repair, but the suffering is still indescribable. Even after all that, my repaired selves have had no different outcomes than their predecessors. More dead hosts, more failed missions. It's like I'm cursed. Now, here I am again, at number thirteen, and it's my last chance. And I just wonder why, if I'm such a loser, did the Viscera give me such an important mission as this. It had to know it would end in failure. Or did the viscera think, in its infinite, inscrutable wisdom, that this heavy burden, or the promise of ultimate punishment for final failure, would force me to rise to the occasion? Don't got a bottle. That's fine. Calvin tosses the empty vodka bottle over his shoulder, through me, when it smashes against the wall. Loan me a couple bucks, and I'll go buy one we can share. The squatting heroin user flicks away his cigarette butt and slowly rises. Fully unfolded, he's taller than Calvin by at least three inches. Better idea. The guy slides his hands in the pockets of his gray hoodie. How about if you loan me a little something-something? His tone is undeniably threatening, his message clear. It wouldn't surprise me if he's got guns or knives in those pockets. He's got host killer written all over him. My circulatory organs race, and my green skin turns fiery red. Will I let this be the moment when everything goes bad again? The hoodie guy pulls out a hunting knife and jabs it at Calvin, who jumps back. Another jab, another jump. Lots of things I could make him do, but running away makes the most sense. Better to minimize risks and increase the likelihood of staying alive. But before I can work my puppet, he thrusts a hand in his overcoat and hauls out the gun he's got in there. It's a 45 semi semi-automatic with a full clip, more than enough weapon to blow away our problem in the alley. But that gun and those bullets have another job that's much more important. I can't let him fire it here, and now? Lashing out a tentacle, I sting his gun hand. Kelvin cries out and drops the forty-five, which the other guy promptly scoops up off the pavement. At that precise instant, shadows and cold fill the alleyway as the viscera cruises overhead. Just in time, it's there, ready to snatch me up and gulp me down. No, it's the moment I've been dreading, the one I can't seem to get away from. The moment I've had nightmares about for so long I can't remember what a good dream is. I'm about to be locked in the depths of that leviathan and tortured like a degenerate traitor for what will seem like an eternity, and I deserve it. But the thought of it suddenly sparks me. I'm so terrified of the consequences of inaction that I feel an urge for action build inside me. You're dead! You're dead! snaps the hoodie guy as he waves the gun at Calvin. The look on his face is crazed. The forty-five could go off at any second. But so could I. Breaking all my connections with Calvin, I leap off his shoulders and throw myself at the hoodie guy. My immaterial substance lands on his face and quickly wraps around his head. He can't see or feel me, but the shocks I administer make an impression. And when I jam a tentacle in the back of his neck and pump in anesthetic, he crumples like a rag doll. I cling to him as the gun slides from his grip. But why doesn't Calvin run over and grab it? Because he's just collapsed and isn't breathing. That's why. This is it. Talon-tipped tentacles descend from the viscera, slithering from the belly of the god-beast amid wildly stroping searchlights. They're coming to get me. I think of the tortures ahead, unmentionable violations of body, mind, and soul, and every bit of me quivers in terror. The mouths, and the tumors, and the self... I've heard what they can do. I've seen what's left afterward, and what the viscera does with that. I'll do anything, try anything, to escape that fate. As the tentacles continue their descent, I peel myself from the head of the hoodie guy and spring toward Calvin. Landing on his chest, I plunge in tentacles and hunt for signs of life. Almost gone. His heart has stopped, and the rest of him is close behind. Detaching myself is what did it. He's long past the point of functioning without me. Good thing we're together again. I restore every hookup winding tendrils and tentacles deep into his body. I pump him full of syrups, carefully calibrated to restore his metabolism. Then I shock his heart, zapping him with just the right charge to restart it. But nothing happens. I feel the slimy discharge from the tentacles of the viscera oozing over my body, and I almost scream. Looking up with my hundred crimson eyes, I see the tentacles are barely six feet away and coming in fast. In fact, one of them is faster than the rest and drops down suddenly, its fang-studded tip grazing my back. And I do cry out then, because the touch of it burns like a brand. It burns and it hurts so much that the next shock I give Calvin's heart is stronger than the first, stronger than intended, and it's strong enough. He comes back to life with a sudden, wrenching intake of breath. Just as the viscera's tentacles are wrapping around me, they unwind and retract, and the cold and the darkness slide away soon after. It takes some doing, but I get Calvin up and moving again. It costs him, I know, bringing him back up to speed after such a deep dive taps reserves we were saving for later. But it had to be done. According to my orders from the Viscera, our target will be in a certain place at a certain time and that time is fast approaching. Shaking off his near-death experience, Galvin retrieves his gun. He takes one last look at the hoodie guy, still out cold on the pavement, then turns his back on the alley and shuffles off into the street. I nudge him left, and he complies. I tell him to go faster, and he does. We are back on track. I'm a nervous wreck, my slimy green flesh tingling and jittering, but we have a chance again, and there's no sign of the viscera, which is a good thing. My retrieval isn't imminent. My failure isn't certain. We barely reach the site of our mission in time. A medical van is parked in front of the wrought-iron gates, back door open to receive a passenger. Less than half a block away, Calvin stumbles to a stop. I'll be damned, he says, scratching his head. I forgot why the hell I came here. No surprise there. I kept that information to myself. But I'm sure he'll get over it. How many times has this happened to you? Is it because you have too much on your mind and things slip through the cracks? Is it a kind of mental hiccup brought on by stress or fatigue? Or is it something else altogether? The next time it happens, think back. Where were you just now? Check the clock. Are you missing any time? If so, what did you do with it? I'll bet you never stopped to wonder, did you? Never asked yourself if some dark passenger might have taken the wheel. Never asked yourself what that thing might make you do next. Never wanted to know. I don't feel so good. Galvin bends over and puts his hands on his knees, coughs a little blood on the sidewalk, I give him a good zap that straightens him up and pump in some high-dose endorphin syrup that clears the cobwebs. Now is not the time to attract attention. I have a job to do, I whisper in his ear. I have to save the world. I have a job to do, repeats Calvin. I have to save the world. There are things I can do to blur his mind, and I do all of them. I keep two tentacles stuck to his head, one on either temple, and pump in syrups that make him suggestible. I blend in mild sedatives to keep him relaxed and malleable. But it's a delicate balance. I also need to keep him alert and ready for action and he needs to remain adaptable so he can improvise if he has to. At least I know him well by now. I have a good idea of how to manage his body chemistry and mental state. I know he can get the job done. Though I'd be lying if I said there isn't any doubt. There's always doubt. And, therefore, fear. The brick building behind the Iron Gates is a mental hospital, over a hundred years old. People with behavioral problems are brought here for treatment and care, though it might be more correct to say that people who are problems are brought here. And one of the patients is more of a problem than the others. She is a problem, potentially, for the world. As we watch, a white-uniformed male orderly with brown skin and a bushy black mustache brings her out in a wheelchair. They are heading for the medical van, which will transport her to another facility. Maybe they can do something for her, the people at the other facility. Nobody here can help her, that's for sure. She's seven years old, and her parents have abandoned her to the care of the state. Her name is Lacey, and she is adorable, with curly red hair, freckles, and bright green eyes. She is also hopelessly insane, a danger to herself and others. At least, that's what the doctors think. I have to save the world. I whisper to Kelvin. He hesitates, then nods and repeats what I told him. I need to get closer to that van, I whisper. Kelvin does just that, shambling toward it. The driver, who's standing by the open back door, waiting to receive the patient, doesn't even notice him. Whether you're an immaterial piggybacking symbiote or a homeless old man, it's good to be invisible, isn't it? By the time we get within twenty yards of the van, the orderly has pushed Lacey halfway across the sidewalk. Almost there! My circulatory organs pound like the hoofbeats of the onrushing future. Everything I've ever done, or been, or thought comes down to this moment. I am on the cusp. Closer, I whisper. Muttering the word, Calvin gets closer. Where is the viscera, I wonder, watching another yoke perform its sacred mission? Or are its infinite eyes already fixed upon me from afar? I don't want to fail. I don't want to be tortured for a thousand years, and I don't want to fail my god. Closer, closer. Then I stop Calvin when we get within ten feet, as if he's waiting for the orderly and patient to pass. Hello, little girl, I whisper, fighting to keep my voice from shaking. Hello, little girl says Calvin. Slowly, Lacey's head turns toward us. There is a heartbeat, a moment in time. And then she starts screaming her lungs out. What the hell? says the orderly. Lacey just keeps screaming and pointing at Calvin, at us. I can't take my eyes off her. It's hypnotic, unlike anything I've ever experienced among humans. Because, for the first time, my gaze is met. I am recognized. And it fills me with terror. I am killing Hitler. My voice quakes fiercely as I whisper the words in Calvin's ear. In his crib. I'm killing Hitler says Calvin as he pulls out the forty-five, guided by my writhing, squirming tendrils threaded through his muscles and organs and bones, in his crib. Long after the blasts of the gunshots, it seems, Lacey's terrible shrieks linger in the air. And so I live happily ever after. No thousand years of torture for me, only glory. I'm a hero, and so is Kelvin, posthumously, anyway. Soon after the shooting, his body gave way, and I had to grab another host. I'd pushed Kelvin to the limit by then, and he dropped dead with the gun in his hand after squeezing off three shots. I do miss him, I can't deny it, but he'll always be a hero to the viscera and its yokes. After all, it was his finger pulling the trigger that killed Hitler in the crib. Our version of Hitler, that is. For there could be no one more dangerous to us than a human who could see us for what we are. Such a person could be used as a weapon against us thwarting our efforts to save your people and your world. Save it for our purposes, which, of course, are the only ones that matter. So the world is safe again, and its people blind as ever to our presence. And you will never know if that pinch, that itch, That ringing in your ear or movement in the corner of your eye is just a fluke, a quirk of your imperfect biology, or something else. Maybe something like me. If that's the case, if what you're sensing or feeling, perhaps right now as you're reading this, is one of us... Then the unseen thing on your shoulders, with its tentacles stuck in your flesh, its slime oozing down your back, its whispers in your ear guiding your every move, that thing might smile and know that all is right with the world, that there's no longer any need to fear exposure or detection. That thing, with its tendrils wound through your brain and heart and gut, like wriggling, glistening worms, it might even laugh. What do you expect when this is such a happy ending? Remember what I told you at the start. I gave you fair warning, after all. This story isn't for you. That was Robert Jashanek's piggyback, as read by me. Link to my personal page is in the show notes. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of stories to tell. For now. Please support us on Patreon, and like us or leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We love to hear from you. Our show is produced by editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and myself, Drew Sebastini. Theme music by Diane Severson, and website by Josh Lightsey. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. I look forward to seeing you again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about The District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.